Hi there, this is Rhiannon Hardingham from R8 Free Productive Health. Histamine and estrogen have an intimate relationship physiologically, which is often responsible for a raft of seemingly unrelated symptoms, from hives and migraines to anxiety and insomnia. And many common and clinically challenging patient presentations have histaminosis as a complicating factor, including PMS and PMDD. Join me for Biocuticals Clinical Mastery, Histaminosis and Estrogen, Breaking the Cycle, on September 14th and 21st. Over two online sessions, I'll lead you through the key clinical steps involved in identifying, assessing and managing female patients with histaminosis. Go to biocuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. I'm really excited about this presentation. I know a lot of you are really interested in this topic and I really look forward to seeing you there. and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland and joining us on the line today is naturopath and nutritionist Rhiannon Hardingham. We'll be discussing hormones and lab test results and how to interpret them as overall indicators of women's health. Welcome to FX Medicine, Rhiannon. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back at FX Medicine. Yeah, we're loving having you back. Great. Today we've got such a chunky topic, but in clinical practice, lab diagnostics are critical as they help both guide and monitor treatment. Now, they're also a brilliant tool for educating and empowering our patients in taking ownership of their health. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm endlessly fascinated with reading both my own and my patients' lab reports because I feel we can learn so much about the inner workings of that individual in front of us. Absolutely. It is, I think, um, an underutilised tool often, uh, especially considering that there is so much that can be seen and interpreted through uh, just basic, standard, um, Medicare-rebated pathology. Mm. And a lot of these patients will already have a history of some of this blood work. And if you really um, thoroughly understand what you're looking for, then you can go back through their history and understand a lot more about where they are in their health journey now based on what they've been through mm. um, without having to go ahead and do a lot of expensive and complicated tests. Yeah, yeah, I feel that's a good point. You know, we just cover the basics and yeah. glean information from what they've already had done before you start doing some fancy stuff yourself. Yeah. Uh, Now, Rhiannon, you've been a guest on the show in the past, but for those Mm -hmm. listeners who may not be familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about your background and also what inspired you to become a naturopath? Yeah, well, I I guess my story is... um, a little bit um, usual in that it was a health crisis in my uh, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like a lot of especially female naturopaths, uh, a uh, health hormonal um, reproductive health crisis mm-hmm. in my early early 20s and that led me to want to uh, better 
be able to heal myself. Mm-hmm. So um, from that perspective, it was um, really about me to begin with. Um, but also prior to that, I had a fairly unconventional upbringing, as you might be able to <laughs> ascertain from my name. Um, you know, you might just say hippie parents. Uh, so, you know, vegetarian diets, very, um, you know, alternate healthcare wherever possible, um, as little conventional healthcare as um, as in, uh, my dad in particular could uh, avoid. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I guess it was in my genes. I did think earlier that I wanted to do something creative and had two false starts with art degrees and mm-hmm. uh, turns out I wasn't a terrible student, just absolutely terrible at picking what I was good at. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy to work out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I really love that. I mean, I was lucky. I grew up with parents that, you know, gave me echinacea and vitamin C oil all throughout winter and, and you know, looked mm-hmm. at all of that side of things. So I think for naturopaths like us, it almost feels like, well, that's the first choice, isn't it? Like that's sort of mm-hmm. just what you do. Um, mm-hmm. But I find it fascinating what inspires people to become naturopaths. I really do. Mm, uh, it is interesting. Yeah. A little non-conventional path. Yeah, exactly. Now, I've mm. done a heap of your courses, I have to say. And I just love how practical you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you know, that practicality, it's not something that we're born with a lot of the times. You know, were you born with Mm. it? Did you have to learn it? But being practical as a naturopath, I think, is a big success marker because Mm. we have to be able to work with our patients in a way that they can roll out the advice that we give them. And and practicality is is a success piece, I think. But Mm. how do you find Mm. it? I think that... uh that as an extension, actually, of the story that I was just giving, it was I I found actually that I was quite practical when I started studying naturopathy. Mm-hmm. I guess in an in an academic way, I found that I was practical. Uh, I ended up getting I, I was, was definitely not a H a straight HC student by any means. My the amount of effort I put in would would uh, be would hardly. Uh, uh, allow that outcome. But I did get HDs in biochemistry and I loved, loved biochemistry. Yeah. I get right into these assignments and get right down to a, a molecular level of understanding what was going on in the body. And my mind was blown by that. And uh, it just, if I can nut something out from a physiology uh, and um uh, and and mode of action perspective for our medicine, mm. then I feel um, really empowered in my capacity to be able to uh, understand what's going on for my patients and to help them uh, really holistically. But that, yeah, that that little um, uh, that, that finite um, uh, level really makes such a big difference to my overall understanding. Yeah, and I think when you understand it on the micro, then you understand it mm. on the macro and you can see how it all falls into place. And with that lens of you really loving mechanisms of action and working out the why behind things, can you mm. first explain the importance of working with pathology tests in clinical practice? And then secondly, tell us why we need to be testing certain hormones on specific days of the menstrual cycle. Mm. Well, yeah, I, um, you know, as I say all the time, I have uh, m- my mentor has been Rachel Arthur now for many years. So mm-hmm. clearly, she has 
influenced me in uh, in many or many a way, but probably no greater one than the um, practice practicality and accessibility of um, pathology interpretation. Mm. From a hormonal perspective, uh, I think that we have uh, a lot to learn and you know, we are uniquely positioned to help women to better understand their hormones than most other practitioners because, you know, for better or for worse, conventional medicine doesn't have a lot to offer women beyond um, hormone uh, pharmaceutical hormonal interventions mm. that for some women obviously are contraindicated and for many women are unfavourable for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Uh, but what is often missing also from a conventional perspective, and it's entirely reasonable considering that the um, interventions that they have to offer are not really reliant on the complexity of hormonal interpretation. Yeah. But what patients often haven't had thoroughly explained to them is what their hormone tests are showing about their underlying hormonal health status. And there is so much that can be gleaned from a day, day two or day three hormone test and a peak luteal, maybe sometimes conventionally known as a day 21 uh, hormone test. From those two tests alone, mm. uh, you can understand so much about what's going on with her menstrual cycle and all of her hormonal symptoms. Yeah, I actually find it really fascinating clinically when you explain to that woman sitting in front of you what those hormones are, what the purpose of them are in her body and what her levels are telling us. It's like the, this inner window to her that that she perhaps has never heard before. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. And the, you know, you see the light bulb go off and so many times women have said to me, how did I get to 35 slash 40 slash 45 and <laughs> never know this about myself? Yeah. Well, it's just, unfortunately, it's not uh, common knowledge. Exactly. It, it is mm. not common knowledge. And I think that's one of the big things that we as clinicians can be educating and helping women with in understanding their hormones is when they do their testing and why they do them on those specific days. So what hormones mm. in particular are you looking for on day two, three? So on day two, three, I absolutely... Um, Ensure that I'm getting an, an, a, the, the gonadotrophin, so an FSH and an LH, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly an estradiol. And then if I had my way, uh, I would also ensure that I had a prolactin. Mm -hmm. uh, it's at that time of the menstrual cycle that prolactin should be at its lowest. Yeah. So it's, it's a good time to assess um, whether or not there is uh, any potential for um, hyperprolactinemia mm. and also it, this it's not essential to do it at, at the early part of the month but certainly um, anti-malarian hormone uh, is is slightly advantageous uh, earlier than later in the mm -hmm. cycle and androgens also slightly advantageous not so much DHEAS but iron and testosterone tend to be a little bit lower at that time of the menstrual cycle. Right. So capturing the baseline level of a woman's mm -hmm. hormones is, is the goal, right? But then yeah. what about that peak luteal uh, phase? What are you looking for at that point of the cycle? 
Yeah, so of course the standard test that's done then is progesterone and of course we're just doing that to ensure that uh, she's ovulated or conventionally they're doing that to ensure that she's ovulated. But from our perspective, it is also uh, to give us an indication of how um, functional the ovaries are because of course your progesterone level is a reflection of the corpus luteum mm. size and the corpus luteum is directly affected or influenced by um, our ovarian functionality and also then the relationship of that progesterone to estradiol gives us a lot of information about her luteal phase symptoms as well as her um, potential fertility, of course. Yes. And if there is that real potential of hyperprolactinemia or latent prolactin, hyperprolactinemia, then that is another uh, important time to assess prolactin. Yeah, yeah, it's just so fascinating, isn't it? I absolutely love mm. it. But, I mean, we're looking at these blood levels of these hormones, so that's one thing. But how do hormone receptors actually impact a hormone cellular effect? Mm. It's so uh, important to always keep this in mind. Mm. It's not uh, just what you're seeing on paper mm. that gives you evidence that this patient has Let's use progesterone as an example. Okay. Pro, uh, sufficient progesterone because the localized impacts of that progesterone in the uterus have a lot more to do with the um, capability of the progesterone receptors in the endometrium as opposed to how much progesterone there actually is. So if those progesterone receptors are overwhelmed by um, uh, estrogen, the relative estrogen receptors, then they will be less functional. Yeah. Uh, and um, and if that progesterone is less available than it might look, then there may be insufficient progesterone um, to interact with those receptors. So then, despite decent looking progesterone levels mm. on paper, you might see some luteal phase deficiency signs that make you think that actually. Uh, she's not, um, her body's not picking up that progesterone in the way that it probably could be. Yeah. And I think this is that a great example of that perfect interplay between, you know, how much weight and value do you put on the numbers in front of you compared to how much weight and value you put to what the woman is saying and her signs and symptoms and marrying that and finding a good balance between the two is always so critical. Isn't it? And that is the art of nuanced clinical practice right. that you absolutely continue to build on through your whole career. I'm absolutely convinced. You know, every year I will look back and go, oh, wow, I'm actually much better at yeah. that this year <laughs> than I was last year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just is um, so important to take everything into account when you're seeing an individual, everything that they're saying about themselves, all the things that you're gleaning about, uh, you know, those answers that she gives you to those critical questions that, mm. you, that you really need um, to ask in every consult alongside, with, alongside the pathology and then putting it all together so that her individual 
picture makes sense, not trying to fit her into uh, the wrong wrong shaped box, if you like. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's something that we will cover a little bit later on uh, in relation to estrogen dominance, but I think that mm. this this is truly an art and, and it does mm. take a lot of practice. So for those practitioners mm-hmm. out there listening that feel like that they're not there yet, you know, you never feel like you're really there. So just keep... Um, keeping your mind open to more and more learnings as you go along. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, um, absolutely something that I've entirely um, borrowed from and been influenced by Rachel Arthur, but mentoring, Mm. it just makes all the difference, you know. I I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without the mentors that I've had, and I think that uh, all of us, no matter what level we're at, really benefit from uh, generational uh, mentoring. Yeah, I would 100% agree mm. and something that I do myself mm. as well. Um, now, I'm really curious, Rhiannon, you know, we're here to talk today about diagnostics, lab diagnostics, women's health. But when I think about women's health, I kind of want to zoom out and talk about something that I call mojo. You know, that sense of when a woman feels really good in her own body and she feels strong and healthy. You know, mm-hmm. what are three key things that you want to see on a blood test that reflect potentially that that sense of mojo? Mm, it's a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And yeah. again, of course, um, you know that that clinical art of interpreting what is normal for her is yes. is um, key, and one that always um, springs to mind around that is uh, thyroid function. You know, if if a woman is uh, carrying a little bit more weight and her TSH is sitting in the low ones, Mm. then that is probably not the correct thyroid. The TSH might look good according to what we consider to be optimal reference ranges, but actually her TSH should probably be sitting over two so that it is telling her body that her metabolism needs a little bit more oomph to it. That's a a well-responsive thyroid. Mm. Um, so thyroid would be one of them for okay. sure and not, you know, certainly not, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, I want to see a TSH of 1 and a T4 of 16. I would say more so that it is relevant to her picture if she's naturally slim and mm. um, her body doesn't need a lot of metabolic push, then you'll see her TSH sit low and a T3, T4 sit in the good, moderate, um, uh, high normal levels, mm-hmm. and she'll she'll sit like that forever. But as I said, if on the other hand her metabolism needs a bit of oomph, then her TSH should sit a bit higher with yeah. the the T three and the T four in, in good ranges. Um, the uh, probably my key one though, and you Emma have heard me talk about this a lot, but um, DHEAS is I think really. Um, uh, undervalued routinely from uh, a, let's say, mojo perspective. Yeah, agreed. It, yeah, it just shows us so much about our resilience, our adrenal resilience. Of course, probably most of us know it more routinely as an androgen and a marker of um, PCOS or uh, otherwise, but it is, of course, an androgen produced by the adrenals. Yes. It is a pre-androgen, so it's the precursor, of course, to androstenedione and testosterone. But more importantly, from a mojo perspective, if our adrenals are not 
competent at producing adequate DHEAS. And the Mm. research is now showing that our resilience to stress and our um, long-term resilience to disease is actually significantly compromised. So I'm always looking at that in relation to the impacts of chronic stress and the impacts of um, chronic exhaustion. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I love that. I mean, when we think of those big metabolic organs, you know, your thyroid, your adrenals, I mean, they're just so critical. But I, mm. I, I do notice working with women that their DHEA levels are often right at the bottom of the reference range. And the woman is telling me, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I've just got brain fog. So you see this rolling out with your patients. It's such a good marker for us to keep an eye on. It really is, isn't it? And it's both um, uh, confirming and concerning. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I always um, talk about the about post um, postpartum depletion mm. and, you know, most women will show low DHEAS in the year after having a, a baby as a direct result of the exhaustion. Yeah. However, um, those who bounce back well, you see their levels come back. And those who really are fundamentally, um, and one of my gorgeous patients who I spoke to last week had a picture of this. She has twins. Yeah. Um, 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 uh, not uncommon for twins, a somewhat traumatic pregnancy and birth and a really significantly depleting postpartum period. And her girls now are um, close to two okay. and her hormones are still looking like um, a mum six months postpartum. So, you know, it's it's patients like that who I'm like, okay, I really pulled her up last week. I'm like, okay, we need to, you need to get sleep. Yeah, These kids need to be looked after, but, you know, someone else, thanks, uh, husband, needs to yeah. uh, do a little bit more work around here because this is actually integral for the future functioning of your family yeah. that we get you rested and restored and we get your adrenals back on track um, and, you know, and, and it's possible but it actually needs to be conscious and it needs, a bit, needs to be a priority otherwise it may never happen. Yeah. I know from personal experience to bounce back from having very low DHEA is so mm. much harder than to maintain a reasonable level of DHEA. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that is, is a really good point. Mm. Uh, I wanted to talk about something, a bit of a catch-all phrase, estrogen dominance. I just wanted to delve into it and just perhaps debunk it a little bit or mm-hmm. go through it a little bit. So, Technically, what is it? So I've noticed more and more patients coming in to see me stating I have estrogen dominance. <laughs> but what, what I want to know is, you know, how do I identify it and when do I actually look for it? Because it, it, it is a catch-all phrase, but, but I think, you know, when is estrogen dominance truly the issue or when is the issue actually excess estradiol relative to progesterone? Like, I've got so many questions about this. Mm. And it is, I mean, you're right, it absolutely has become a catch-all and then there's this sort of um, resistance movement going on in our <laughs> profession a little bit, denying that it exists at all. And, you know, honestly, I think that it just comes back to what we were saying about nuanced clinical 
interpretation of the circumstances for the individual in front of you, mm. which is that it absolutely exists for some women yeah. and it absolutely does not exist in other women who have been told that they have it or who have been treated for it mm. but for whom the practitioner or, in the case of a self-diagnosis, the individual hasn't actually done the investigations that warrant that, uh, that let's say, diagnosis. So what, so, yeah, run us through what diagnostics would you consider uh, to be gold standard for someone to be actually estrogen dominant? Mm. Well, the the basics are the two well-timed estradiol assessments. Mm. So at baseline on day two or day three of your cycle, you really ideally want to see an estradiol below uh, 200, above okay. above 200, certainly even medically is technically, I say medically, I mean from an IVF perspective, is considered to be excessive. Okay. Uh, and then again, in that peak luteal phase test, and by that, what we're technically saying is ideally seven days after ovulation, whenever that may fall, whatever day that may fall on for her, uh, we are wanting to see an estradiol somewhere mm-hmm. uh, not too much higher than, uh, as you know, there's, there's a bit of nuance to this, but let's just say for ease sake about six or 700. Yeah. But the relationship to the progesterone matters. So if her estradiol is 500 but her progesterone is only uh, 30, yep. for example, then you might actually consider that that estradiol is excessive at 500. And then, of course, the other factors really involve um, her symptom picture, whether or not she's presenting as having challenges with estrogen detoxification and um, whether or not she's suffering from the symptoms of excess estrogen. I'm not going to treat a woman with an estrogen estradiol of 700 in the luteal phase for major estrogen excess if symptomatically she um, had absolutely no issues whatsoever. Her progesterone was doing well, cycles were normal, her fertility was fine. That's not going to bother me. But if she's suffering, of course, then we're going to investigate whether or not that is part of the picture for her. Yeah, I think that's that's a great conversation because I think sometimes uh, we are a little guilty of going looking for a problem and then applying a set protocol to it. And I really want people (laughs) to expand their mindset and first question that diagnosis. If a patient comes into you and says, oh, I have X, Y, Z, really look for where is the evidence for that, both in her labs and in her signs and symptoms, uh, rather than just taking it on face value. And, you know, I think over the years I've had so many women come in and say, oh, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And then when you look at you know, where is the evidence for that? It's like, oh, someone just mentioned it to her along the way uh, and yep. it's not actually a problem. So I really want the listeners to start questioning what they're being told and looking for the actual evidence that tells you is it or is it not the problem. Um, yeah. And it, it can be uh, naturopaths, it can be conventional doctors, it can even be specialists who have said these things to the patients in the past and it's appear, when you go digging into that, you, you, you find that actually there's been 
no justification for that label she's been carrying around. Mm. But as naturopaths, I do think we need to be really cognizant of not being too enthusiastic about perfectionism when yes. it comes to our patients and their, especially their pathology levels. If they feel fine but you are, you know, that on paper something doesn't um, measure up to what you consider is optimal, you don't need to start diagnosing her with an issue and tell her she has a problem that, that she's not even physically experiencing. That is, um, it's just it's just a bit of scaremongering and a bit, it's not really evidence-based practice most of the time, I would say. No, and that's that's what we want to be practising mm. is evidence-based um, clinical practice. Now, I wanted yeah. to move on to what I call the great Vitex debate. And I'm really, <laughs> I'm really keen to hear more about what you would see on pathology uh, to indicate the effective use of Vitex because I feel that Vitex is just randomly thrown at women that have any kind of hormonal imbalance. But it you, know, you, you hear from patients that they took Vitex and they felt worse. They've got heavier periods or more painful periods or whatever it might be for that woman. So can you enlighten us on when you would use Vitex? It is, um, I think, one of the most um, confusing and scary herbs, actually, for new graduates. Uh, I don't think that we give uh, the education around Vitex as many warnings Mm. as we probably should, and so I find a lot of practitioners learn the hard way that they uh, can actually cause problems by prescribing Vitex to some patients and then because they haven't been given any framework around uh, indications for when Vitex is safe and effective uh, as opposed to when it might cause more problems, they really shy away from using it further. Yeah. And the, um, the... other thing about Vitex, the key thing is that it um, it absolutely can exacerbate uh, estrogen dominant conditions, yeah. and it absolutely can exa- exacerbate luteinizing hormone dominant conditions. So it's uh, you know if if you're not doing those pathology investigations and you're not really aware of what to look for and when to look for it, then yeah. you can give Vitex to somebody who will walk away and feel a lot worse for it and maybe never come back to you. When you look at the list of what Vitex is indicated for and mm. then you look at the side effect list of Vitex, they're exactly the same. Yeah, okay. So, you know, you really – and it's absolutely true. It can cause acne or cure acne, it can cause a worsening of premenstrual symptoms or, of course, improve them. Uh, You know, clinically I've had many patients for whom breast tenderness has uh, been significantly uh, 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 made worse by Vitex and obviously it's it's considered to be one of the key benefits. So I've worked out exactly for whom um, Vitex will be beneficial and for those for whom I just... Uh, would wouldn't touch it with a um, ten foot pole. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So I think for me, I think of Vitex for the low estrogen or low progesterone uh, Mm -hmm. type picture. And if there's any signs to me of estrogen excess, I'll say, no way, we are not going near that. Is there any other little clues you can share with us? Yeah, they're really the the key ones for sure. I, um, as you know, am a really big fan of Vitex for premature ovarian insufficiency. Mm. And in my practice, it's probably obviously a fertility-focused practice, but that's probably the key utilisation for it, especially uh, when it comes to um, trying to conceive IVF preparation and support. I genuinely don't think it's an exaggeration to say that a lot of my patients wouldn't have their babies today if it wasn't for Vitex in mm-hmm. those circumstances. Uh, and I um, I do also like it for some presentations of um, the changeability in uh, perimenopause. It can make yeah. a big difference there. But I would be, it would be extremely rare to see me use it in a case of PCOS and extremely rare to see me use it in a case of endometriosis. Yeah, I love that. Okay, that's some great clinical guidelines for everyone out there listening mm-hmm. on the Great Vitex Debate. Thank you for sharing those with us. My pleasure. Uh, I would like to look at, let's just move the bar now to steroidal saponin-based herbs like Shadavari or Dongkwai or Black Cohosh. What pathology signs would you see that would indicate, okay, let's go for those steroidal saponins here? Again, they are really beneficial for low estrogen state. Okay. Uh, to a degree, they work a little bit like um, phytoestrogen. It's believed that they work a little bit like phytoestrogens from an estrogen receptor modulation perspective, but okay. also they certainly do, you know, I think there's plenty of evidence um, clinically with the application of these herbs that they do um, promote ovarian estradiol production. So, again, um, really big on them for low estrogen conditions, not a big fan of them in uh, estrogen excess uh, and maybe similar to the Vitex I have seen. um, Patients come who uh, would have, let's say, for example, uh, menorrhagia and had seen a practitioner in the past who had given them a lot of steroidal Mm, saponins for that and have just come in with heavier, more painful, um, uh, more significant bleeds than they've had in the past. Yeah, it can be really problematic. And this is is where this art and science of naturopathy is so interesting. Um, But black cohosh, you know, there's, there's that thing there around migraines with black cohosh mm-hmm. that I think a lot of practitioners are not aware of either. Can you talk us through that one? Yeah, that's interesting because it is both um, potentially beneficial for migraines, uh, but also I do find that if it is, and, and I'm not alone, uh, I uh, after learning the hard way, I had uh, conversations with some experienced herbalists and found that it was not only me that had found this clinically, but mm. the patient has a real concern with menstrual migraines. Black cohosh certainly uh, tends to throw them into a really bad uh, migraine episode okay. the first time they take it. So when introducing black cohosh to most of my patients, or certainly those with any 
uh, hormonally-related migraines or even headaches, I just start by a drop, giving them drop doses. I'll give them a separate bottle of black cohort mm, and nice. just get them to start by dropping five drops into their medicine cup along with the other herb mix until we get up to a point where the dose is adequate. Counterintuitively to that, the evidence would have us um, uh, believe that the most efficacious dose of black cohosh mm. is the higher end of the reference range, especially for menopause. Okay. So you do want to get their doses up there, but I just always introduce it gradually, especially if I'm concerned about her particular risk. Yeah, that you know, go low and slow is always such a good approach if you're not sure as well. Yeah. Now let's move on to adaptogens. Uh, I think that, you know, we're using truckloads of them uh, over the last couple of years. <laughs> Can't we all? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some of my key ones are withania, rhodiola, panax ginseng, which I know you love. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the key differences between when you would use each of those ones? Like is there something that you see on pathology or labs that makes you think, okay, that's when I should use rhodiola? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, they're all they're all so different, those yeah. three, and, and probably the three that I use more than any other also, Emma. We, we have a lot in common, you and I. Yeah. Uh, uh, rhodiola, of course, is uh, dopaminergic, meaning that it can, uh, meaning that it should be considered contraindicated for patients with bipolar or any history of uh, psychosis or mm episodes however it also of course therefore is very beneficial for patients with um, depression and a a low effect basically an inability to enjoy life or find joy in things yeah and the further benefit back to my area of special interest is that uh, dopaminergic activity, of course, helps to lower prolactin. Okay. So in cases where um, uh, particular stress or anxiety uh, is a trigger for hyperprolactinemia, rhodiola can be a really efficacious intervention um, for that presentation. So it can literally allow her to ovulate, for example, if the prolactin has um, compromised her menstrual cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, rhodiola is very much then actually a hormonally acting herb but in an indirect fashion. Yeah, yeah, like so many of our herbs, they have one yeah. direct action but many indirect actions. Yes, that's right, that's right, because we are one complicated system. Yeah, that is true. Uh, what about withania? Like I have to say this is the most prescribed herb in my liquid dispensary yeah. um, for so many reasons, but what makes you look at pathology and say, yes, that one needs withania? Yeah, I mean, you've heard me joke. Many times that, uh, you know, I'll look at a lot of patients and go, oh, she has a withania deficiency. Okay, we'll, we'll work on that one. Um, but, you know, like, uh, you know, as you know, I'm really keen on us all understanding that herbs both have have not just indications but also potentially have some contraindications. Yeah. And for withania, of course, uh, it is um, potentially um, going to exacerbate a hyperthyroid mm. and and because of uh, some really impressive uh, actions on uh, hemoglobin promotion, yeah. it is also probably something that you would avoid in iron excess and certainly in full-blown hemochromatosis. Yeah, okay. 
Um, outside of that, I do uh, really like it for the opposite of those things, of course, um, <laughs> compromised adrenal function, uh, exhaustion, depression with anxiety because it's got that nervine side or that nervine activity as well, but yeah. also for those women with low iron who have really uh, uh, who have great trouble um, building their hemoglobin levels or women with a slightly sluggish thyroid and that low adrenal picture, it's really the, um, the, the perfect herb. Yeah, yeah. And, and so many of our patients are all of those things uh, at mm. the same time. Um, lastly, Panax ginseng. What are your little mm. insights well, on that? Panax, of course, when you, when you look at the literature, really it's been significantly researched regarding uh, testosterone levels, yeah. both in men and in women. I think there's uh, about three studies uh, regarding testosterone response to Korean ginseng. Sorry, it might be one. I'd have to refresh my memory from yeah. that from a few weeks ago. Uh, but either way, we do know that Korean ginseng does have a positive effect on androgens. And of course, it is really beneficial for uh, a very uh, heavily depleted uh, a, a, a HPA access and mm. low-functioning adrenal. So I would use it with low DHEAS, with low testosterone, excellent, of course, traditional use really for that menopausal transition yeah. or that postpartum um, depletion or just uh, any woman or man for that matter who is suffering from those really flatline adrenal um, consequences, uh, consequences of chronic stress. Yes, yes, yes. I think it's the chronicity there that really gets me with the panic yeah. ginseng um, to be so depleted that the DHA and the testosterone is all low um, yeah. would be a nice key indicator for the panics perhaps. Absolutely. Um, okay, and then I wanted to ask you about the adrenal androgen production, so herbs for the adrenal androgen production and also herbs that support ovarian androgen production because I still think a lot of practitioners are not quite aware that there's a difference here. Yeah, and there's such a difference yeah. and it's so easy to um, to understand what's going on if you're doing the, the thorough androgen assessment uh, on their pathology. Yeah. But, of course, the DHEA and DHEAS, the, the sulfate version that we're measuring, mm. are produced at, at the adrenals and uh, are the precursors, as I said before, for androstenedione and progesterone, uh, sorry, androstenedione and testosterone and therefore, of course, for uh, estradiol. Yeah. But the... Um, uh, the key consideration when the DHEAS is low on the blood work mm. is that adrenal functionality. So Korean ginseng is a key one for that. But, of course, the uh, – I was going to say king, but let's say queen of the herbs <laughs> for this action is, of course, uh, tribulus. Yeah. Both for – you know, we know, of course, that tribulus is well regarded for its testosterone promotion in – Men, but we have evidence in the literature that DHEAS in women is um, increased with uh, long-term. So the study mm -hmm. was 90 days, long-term 
um, tribulus uh, prescription. Okay. And clinically, you know, I just have to say it's undeniable that the most efficacious intervention for low DHEAS outside of rest, sleep, mm. eating well, avoiding stress is uh, tribulus but not pulsed in the way that maybe we have um, sometimes been taught to use it around okay. ovulation induction but actually just using it all the way through the menstrual cycle to see those levels come up. It usually takes two or three months to see it on paper. Yeah, and it's nice to be able to say to patients, you know, this is a fantastic herb, here's the research. You know, it's going to take three months until perhaps you really notice the impact of it um, and yes. setting those expectations is is so critical. It really is, Yeah. Amazing. Now, I wanted to finish up with a couple of questions that will give us some more insights as practitioners. You know, what uh, what is your key to running a successful clinical practice? Because a lot of people that <laughs> listen to this podcast are clinicians and they may, may be in all phases, just, you know, studying still to graduating uh, just recently to have been, you know, doing what they do for a long period of time. But you're enormously successful as a clinician and I'd really love to perhaps get a couple of insights on on why you think you're successful in the way that you are. Mm, it's I. I mean, my immediate answer is I don't know, but no. Um, <laughs> I, I I was just reflecting as you were saying that on how different times are these days, aren't they, Emma? Yeah. From when from when we graduated, and uh, you know, literally in my final year of uh, study, they were still one of the key things that they were talking about regarding promoting your business was getting a listing in the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how we were still talking about that in, uh, oh. the, in the early noughties, but we were. <laughs> anyway, you know, I really think that for me I fell on my feet mm-hmm. uh, uh, working at Fertile Grounds. I'd, I'd practised in my own practice for five years okay. before, um, before I was lucky enough to get a position at Fertile Ground, yeah. I think we're probably a little bit more of the old-fashioned way of building a successful practice, which is through letter writing and um, lots of communication with, in our case, um, fertility um, specialists and obstetricians, yeah. so, you know, medical professionals for whom you are working towards a collegial uh, relationship with and, you know, we certainly do. There is uh, not a day that goes by that we don't have referrals from specialists directly to our clinic and directly to individual practitioners Uh, and, you know, it is, it's it's not a social media-based business. It's really yeah. a, um, a, a grassroots business and that means that the patients referred to us are really in great need of our uh, expertise uh, because they're often complex and heavy, heavily medicalised. Mm. So yeah, for me, it's actually about um, reaching out in a, in a professional um, but, of course, friendly way to um, those um, practitioners of different modalities to whom you uh, could build a um, referral base with in the future. Yeah, yeah. What, what I do notice looking from the outside is that you are always focused on upskilling. 
using mentors mm-hmm. and uh, whatever's in front of you to upskill and never ceasing to learn. And also mm-hmm. that collaborative care model, working with other healthcare practitioners, you know, those two things for me really stand out, um, you know, and shine brightly as to why you are so successful in clinical practice. And and I think mm, that, um, you know, for, for those listening, you know, finding a mentor is, is so critical. It kind of compresses time. You get ahead faster yeah. because you can piggyback on their knowledge. Yeah. And, I, I say that often too to the mentees mm. that I work with you know from my experience both as a mentee and a mentor it really gives you that confidence to be able to say to your patients this is what we find in situations like yours this is what we find works isn't it even if you've never treated that condition before mm. you can go in with the confidence of your profession uh, in your mind backing you up so that you can uh, really um, reassure that patient that you know what is the best uh, intervention for their circumstances to get them the results that they want. And that flies with patients. They love that. Mm, uh, and it just feels so good to clinically have that confidence, you know, as you say, sort of well before your years of experience would otherwise grant you. Yeah, yeah. It's a, mm. it's a really exciting uh, thing as well to be mentored and and to have that fast yeah. growth in knowledge. It's so great. I can't can't uh, emphasise it enough. To be honest, amazing. Well, thanks, Rhiannon, for being with us today. We've discussed this topic from you know a broader perspective uh, than just fertility or just looking at it from that reproductive angle, which I've really loved. And you know, so often we get laser focused on testing hormones as part of fertility, but you know, we can sometimes forget how important it is to look at the hormones and the lab results as an indicator of of what I call mojo. You know, that over overall health. So thank you so much for all of your very clinically relevant um, pieces of wisdom today. That's great. Thank you so much, Emma. It's such uh, an important topic and so close to my heart as I know it is yours. So yeah, it's been a real pleasure to be able to come on and talk to you about it today. Brilliant. Now, thanks everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Dr. Damien Christoph. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to herbal and naturopathic clinician, educator, and researcher Ian Breakspear about all things olive leaf extract. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode.